I'd love for you to take the word of God and turn to Mark chapter number 15 this morning. Mark chapter number 15, we'll pick up our reading in verse number 42. If you will, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. And we'll take our reading through the end of the chapter. Mark chapter 15 and verse number 42. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body uh, to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which he had hewn out of the rock and rolled the stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. Let's pray one more time. Father, we come to you again just to thank you and praise you for the opportunity to gather, Father, for your name's sake and for your son. Father, we... Um, we tread upon glorious ground this morning as we tread upon the very Word of God. We've already heard it, Father, um, encouraged to us. We've heard exhortations, Lord. We've heard it prayed. We've heard it sung in some sense. And now, Father, it's time to hear it taught and proclaimed. So, Lord, um, we come to you now to ask you to accomplish the unthinkable and to do, Father, um, the impossible. And that is to bring to life, Father, dark and dismal places in our hearts. Father, we need the Word of God to accomplish that. We need the Spirit of God, Father, to utilize that sword to do it. So, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your Spirit. We pray, Father, that you take the Word of God, that you would feed our souls this morning, that we would hunger and thirst after righteousness, and um, that you would accomplish, Father, great and mighty things. Um, Lord, we pray that um, you would guide my lips, and also my heart, but at the same time, Father, uh, I do sincerely pray that you would even speak unsearchable riches to my own heart. Father, that you would even preach and proclaim the very Word of God um, to me as I preach and teach, Father, that you would convict my heart of sin, that you would encourage me in the faith, Father, that you would just produce a joy in my own heart that is unthinkable and surpasses, Father, um, all that we could ever ask or think. Father, we pray that we would approach you now in faith, that you would be with each person here that is listening, Father, that they would receive the word of God with the utmost joy, whatever it may be, Father, and that you just use it in our hearts this morning to make us more like your son, Father. More than anything, our church this morning needs to be more like Christ. So, Lord, would you show us him this morning and use him in our lives to make us godly, holy, loving, righteous, in a whole host of ways. Father, we commend this time to you now in Christ's name. Amen.
you pray for me, my computer died. So, I'll go solo this morning with what is in my mind. I mean, it seems that maybe there's opposition this morning. Our brother this morning was sick and had to call in for Sunday school, and now um, everything that I had prepared is gone, but we will preach on. So you pray for me that the Lord would give wisdom and and, and what to be said this morning. It's uh, it's a horror that I have I have worried about up until this moment, and now it's here. Anyway, we will lean on the Lord a lot um, as we approach the Word. But we'll begin with a thought. Um, one one of the hardest, most difficult things that I've encountered in the ministry and in life, to be honest with you, has been dealing with the reality of death. You know, as I've lived and as I've ministered, and particularly as I have ministered, um, one of the things that is most difficult to wrap my mind around and to minister even to the saints has been, I mean, the reality of loss. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing that we have lived for hundreds of generations now. Um, since the time of Adam, and with all of the advancements that we've had in technology, all of the advancements that we've had in healthcare, all of the advancements that we've had in taking dominion over this world, and even advancements that we've had somewhat within the church and reaching the world with the gospel, um, we, the things that we can do now with the body, the things that we can do now with technology, the things that we can do now um, with, with medicine, it's, it's phenomenal. It's amazing. Um, yet... Six to 10,000 years removed of generation after generation after generation, um, what we have ceased to advance in, in some sense, has been the reality of how to deal with death. You know, um, over six to 10,000 years, it seems that we've really not advanced much in how to ease the suffering. Even when it's expected, it's still somewhat unexpected. Um, even when you prepare for it in your mind and you know that it's coming and a loved one's about to be lost, um, the reality is, is that it still hits hard within the soul of a man. It still stings to the end. And you know it's not right. At least in some sense, we know that it's not right. Whether you're a believer or you're an unbeliever, um, you recognize that that's not the way that it ought to be. A minute to live... And death is an enemy. It's a reality that grips us all. And the amazing thing is, is that even as it happens and it's done, it won't be, you know, but weeks or months or years in which just a thought will, sweat, will bring a wellspring of reality back up in our hearts and souls of the ones that we had lost and longed for a day in which we may see them again. That's a reality. Um... But even in that, there's some sense of a blessing. Every funeral I've done has been, um, in some sense, the, uh, the hardest thing that I do. Especially whenever you have someone that's an unbeliever or someone whom you're not sure of the reality of the state of their souls. So you come and you simply preach the gospel. You give hope where hope can be given and you try not to give hope where you, you can't. In some way, you seek to honor the living as well as the dead. You take just a few moments in which um, you seek to serve one last time that person. 
that image bearer of God. And this is something that, that, that spans not only in our culture, but all throughout um, the world. I was reminded of the difficulty of death just a few months ago as I prepared for this sermon. Um, you know, we lost a little one. Um, it was a miscarriage. Um, he was 18 weeks old. It was different. We had miscarried before. And we had the opportunity to bring him home, uh, to wrap his little body in clothes to prepare him for his burial. Um, our little girl uh, with her mother-in-law sought to sew a little sack that the little guy could lay in. Every one of them sought to serve him in some capacity to give him or to make him something. And I did as well. And on a Saturday evening, we went to the funeral home and prepared the plot. And our little 18-week-old baby, we put him down in and we spent some time in prayer and we looked to Christ and we sought in hope. Um, and our boys, they, the funeral home had asked us, you know, do you want us to cover it up when we're gone? I said, no. Um, our, our, our little boys, we took all our shovels and I said, this is one last time that you can serve your brother. You know? And put his body in the ground um, with sorrow yet with hope. You know? And as I thought about that this week, I thought about um, this portion of Scripture um, where it speaks of our Lord who gave us His life and gave His life on Calvary, a ransom for sinners like us. And we're going to encounter in this portion of Scripture um, the reality of death. And, and, and I don't say that just in some sense to grip your emotions, but at the same time I do. Because I think sometimes we read the Scriptures cold and indifferent and apathetic. But one of the purposes of Scriptures is to grip your emotions. It's not the only thing. You know, we're not ultimately charismatic here and believe that this morning that, that an emotional experience actually um, equates to uh, the presence of God in our lives. But at the same time, the Word of God is to inform our intellect, it is to move our emotions, um, and it is to provoke our will to action in obedience to God. That a good sermon, that a, that a, that a good word, that the Word of God as we read it is to do just that. And that whenever we come particularly to the narratives within Scripture, we come to the Gospels in which we read, a narrative is, is the story, and it's the story of God, and God is the greatest storyteller of all time. And if we're not careful, we can read a passage like this, and we can read it somewhat cold, uh, indifferent, and concrete in such a way that we just gloss over what's happening here. But the gripping reality is, is that our Lord at this moment has died. And we are to put ourselves within the text in some sense. Not in a sense to where the entirety of the text revolves around us, but as a bystander, we hear the cries. You know, we, we hear our Lord's last words. At this moment in the text, our Lord has given up the ghost. He's commended His Spirit to the Father. Um, the, the, the ridiculing has ceased. The darkness has lifted. And... The veil is rent. But what we find now is that the hustle and the bustle of everything that was happening around the cross is now done. It's over. It's really somewhat of an eerie scene if you put yourself in the text. It's like losing a loved one and then going home. Uh, you've, been, you've been wrapped up in all of the hustle and bustle of the last few days preparing a funeral and a body. And now, and now when you go home, you go home all alone. And now the silence is just stifling. 
The person that you used to talk with, the person that you used to lean on, the person that you used to do this with and that with. Now every day, um, now, now when everything is done, you just sit there and it's almost eerie. Because you can hear them in the background or you want to pick up a phone and call, but you can't. And that's where we're at in the text. Our Lord has commended up His Spirit. And there the lifeless body of our Lord, Jesus, Savior Jesus Christ, now hangs there upon a tree. And we enter into the text. Verse number 42. The first thing that we see is the request of the body. This entire text is really geared around and towards the burial of our Lord. Which is an interesting thing that the New Testament Scriptures um, even give attention to it, isn't it? You know, we, we know that the death of Christ accomplished something. We know that the resurrection accomplished something. But what we see is in the Scriptures is really the reality that, that, um, that, that the Gospel writers as well as the Apostle Paul himself give some great attention to the burial. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 and verse number 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures." And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And the Apostle Paul declares the gospel there. And he declares it in such a way to include not only with it the death, but also the burial. And sandwiching in between the resurrection. Is the burial extremely important? We'll find in this text that it is. Not only does Paul... Um, refer to it, but all four gospel writers refer to it um, in this portion of Scripture. Um, towards the end, they all refer to the death, but also the burial, and then following that, the resurrection um, of our Lord. And we pick up in verse number 42, and the first thing that we see again is the, um, is the request of the body. Uh, the Bible says in verse number 42 of Mark chapter 15, Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went in to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So we see the request of the body. Verse number 42, we see the day. You're not going to think that it's all that important, but the day is actually very important. Because again, if we put ourselves in the scene... We're going to see the significance of that. And the Bible says there that when the evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day that is before the Sabbath. The preparation day was the day that literally it says that is the day before the Sabbath, pro-sabbaton. Um, it means literally the day before the Sabbath. You'll, you'll remember that the Jews, according to the Old Covenant law, Moses had prescribed that on the Sabbath day there were certain things that were to be done and those that weren't to be done. So what you would find is that you would find that, that Friday was the day of preparation or the day in which they would prepare for the Sabbath. It may be like some of you uh, men and women in your homes on Saturday nights. It's a different type of night throughout the week. Why? Because you're preparing for the Lord's Day. 
There's certain things you want to do, there's certain things you don't. You want to rest in Christ, you want to prepare your minds for, for worship. So Saturday evening, often for some of you, precludes certain activities and things, or it, it makes for certain activities preparation for the Lord's day, for the celebration of Christ. Um, this is actually grounded in a concept in the Old Covenant, and even in the Jewish tradition. That, that the men and women would take Friday and they would prepare in many different ways for the Sabbath. Now, boys and girls, you may remember what day the Sabbath was in the Old Covenant. It was Saturday, but it wasn't just Saturday. The Sabbath actually began at 6 p.m. or approximately around sundown on the Friday evening before. So our days begin at 12 midnight and extend to the midnight, but their days would begin in the evenings. So the Sabbath day would begin their celebration, their rest um, in, the, uh, in God would begin on the Friday evening before. Now why does Mark tell us that? Mark tells us that because there's some things that have to be done before that starts. You'll remember that Jesus gives his last cry about what time? About 3 p.m. We know that it's not Sabbath yet. Because the text tells us it's still preparation day, the day before that. So we know that in the text now, that when Joseph of Arimathea comes and requests the body, um, that he's coming and requesting it somewhere between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. And the thing is, is that he has a job that he must get done prior to that. Actually, if you were to go, you don't need to, but if you were to go to John's Gospel, you would find that the, I mean, John chapter 19, prior to this text, before the Lord even dies, he gives up and commends his spirit, gives up the ghost. Um, that the religious leaders come before Joseph and actually request for the body. Um, they come and they, they actually approach Pilate, this religious elite, and they ask him a peculiar question. And they say, Pilate, we need you to break their legs. Why? Because in, in, in essence, it's, it's taking too long. It is waxing on longer than we, it ought to. And if they don't die before sundown, then the problem that we're going to have is that it's going to leak into the uh, Sabbath day. And that may not seem like a big deal to you, but it was to the religious elite. Because if you read Deuteronomy chapter 22, and I believe it's verse number 21, what you find there is that you find that if a man hangs upon a, a, a tree, he's cursed. And, if, and, and after he dies, Moses instructs the people of God to take him down before the Sabbath or before the night begins, because if a man hangs a curse on a tree overnight, they defile the land. And by defiling the land, they lose the inheritance of the land. That, that to have a man accursed hang on a tree overnight would be to curse the land. So in John chapter number 19, what you have is the religious elite who are getting antsy. I mean, they've been putting the, 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 the speed on this from day one. I mean, they hold three trials throughout the night. They've been up all night. They push him to Pilate, and they urge Pilate to crucify this man. Why? On a charge of blasphemy and high treason against Rome. And now they're going to push it even further. Why? Because they care about this man? No. Why? Because he's suffering so great. Just go ahead and end it and give him mercy? No. Why? Because of their legalistic mentality and their love for themselves. And they say, break their legs so that they'll die sooner and give us the body so that we can go bury him so that the land won't be cursed. That's the idea. Um, immediately after um, our Lord um, gives up the ghost, though, we meet a man. Who not only, so the religious elite requests the body, then Joseph of Arimathea, verse number 43, a prominent council member, 
who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So we see an official request by this man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. There's three prominent Josephs throughout the Scriptures. You'll remember Joseph in Genesis, that great man of God who was sold into slavery by his, by his family. And eventually makes it through and rises to second in command in Egypt and saves his people from famine and just a tremendous blessing. You meet another man at the beginning of the Gospels by the name of Joseph, who's the earthly um, administrator of the home and the father. Not, not in a biological sense, but in a, a guardian type sense. He is, he is brought in through Mary's womb um, of the Holy Spirit, this sinless Son of God. And, and he's given to this man by the name of Joseph who would guard him. Um, in his infancy against Herod, and he would raise him up. And here we meet a third Joseph who, in similar fashion, doesn't guard the Son of God in his birth, but guards the Son of God in some sense in his death and really facilitates the resurrection in some sense as he guards the body, puts it in a proper burial place, um, and sets the environment for um, the resurrection and just days to come. What a blessing it must have been. I think of what a blessing it was just to lay our little one, just to honor him one last time. And I think about what a blessing it must have been for Joseph, as hard as it was. It was hard, yeah. But it was also good. Joseph, and you'll meet Nicodemus. Um, Matthew tells us, John tells us. Many of their servants probably, and the women who stand afar off, get the tremendous blessing taking our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, wrapping His broken body and placing Him in a tomb in, in protection in some sense until three days later He would rise again. But who is this man? This man is Joseph of Arimathea. He's a prominent council member, it says. Prominent council member is a reference to his position in the Sanhedrin. That may not seem like a big deal to you, but it would have been a big deal. Why? Because less than 24 hours prior... Um, we find that the Sanhedrin are the ones who take a vote on our Lord and Savior for His condemnation. They condemn Him to death. They, um, they gather together and conspire against our Lord in such a way that um, puts Him essentially before Pilate and upon the cross. Not only does it say he's a council member, but it says he's a prominent council member. Um, that means that he would have been up in a higher echelon of the hierarchy within the Sanhedrin. Um, that he would have been one of the greater authorities. Um, you're going to find in just a few moments that Nicodemus is along with him. You'll remember uh, John actually tells us the one who had came to Jesus by night, John chapter number 3, and asked him that great question, you know, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And you must be born again. Was the, um, was the principle that our Lord proclaimed to him that night, and it still stands even to this day. These men would have been on the Sanhedrin. These men would have been influential within the Sanhedrin. These men um, would have been um, necessary to move forward um, in the Sanhedrin in many, many ways. They would have had many ears in whom um, they, had, they, had, they were given by the people. Um, so he was a prominent man. He was a council member. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. And that means that he was a Jew. And Mark goes on to tell us that even more than that, that he was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. 
If you were to go to John chapter number 19, you would read there um, in this account that he was a, Matthew as well, that he was a disciple of the Lord, that he was a disciple of Jesus. It's John that tells us that he was a secret disciple of Jesus, who was himself here waiting for the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means that he was a man who was following Christ. That even within the Sanhedrin, that he was in some sense waiting for the kingdom of God. He was waiting expectantly. He was waiting looking for something. We don't know exactly 100% what all this means in Joseph's mind. But at the end of the day, it means that he was waiting upon the rule and reign of Christ, the Messiah who would come and take that um, at some point in the future. Um, he was a learner. That's what the term disciple means. The gospel writers, the gospel writers also tell us that not only was he a disciple, not only was he waiting for the kingdom of God, but he was a good and a just man. He was just in the sense of justified before God. He was just in the sense of a righteous man. He was good in the sense of a moral, excellent man. As, which is the foundation of um, the concept of him waiting even for the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say that, he, that coming and taking courage went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So we find here that he's a prominent council member. He's waiting for the kingdom of God. He's a good and a just man. He's a disciple of our Lord and he's a courageous man. Taking courage, it could be literally translated, and I believe there are translations that say he plucks up courage, goes into Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. So we see the request of the body, then we see the response of Pilate here in verse number 44. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. That's the response. Um, and this is an interesting take as well, just a, a scene. What you have here is our Lord uh, lifeless upon a tree. You have somewhere in the midst this man by the name of Joseph, as well as Nicodemus, and, um, and you see them there together. And they come immediately and they go to Pilate. And the, and the thing that's interesting about this is that the common man couldn't do that. That what Pilate, but that, that what Joseph does is he uses his religious leverage at this moment to go into Pilate and to do what he believes is right and good and just by this man. That he goes in and he requests and asks for the body of Jesus. Pilate marvels, he could be astonished that he was already dead. There's some confusion about this verse, exactly what he's saying, but it seems to be just that. You know, I think some commentators run back and forth about what it means. It seems fairly clear what it means, that he was astonished that he had died already, that it was actually a fairly quick death in reality. That when you study Roman crucifixion, it was the, the perfection, the, the perfect tool of death, perfected over centuries. But not only was it the perfect tool of death, it was the perfect tool of torture. That at times it would take two, three, four days a man could hang upon a cross and slowly die. That, that it is actually somewhat astonishing to Pilate that it happened so quickly given that they had not yet even broken the legs. So what does Pilate do? Pilate summons the centurion and asks him if he had been dead for some time. Why? 
because he wants to verify the death because it's happened so quickly. The last thing that they need to have is a, a coup happen in which Joseph or a zealous Jew come and argue for the body of Jesus when he's not yet dead yet. They take him down and the insurrectionist is alive. Um, Roman soldiers, a centurion, could lose his job and possibly his life after he's lost a, a prisoner. Um, so, so what do they do? They go and they, 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 they verify the death of this man. And I think that that's a significant point that we'll draw again later, that this was a verified death. Why bury the Lord? Why does the gospel writers, why do the gospel writers seem to emphasize that so much? To verify and witness the death of Christ. When they bury Him, it is, it is the end of something. It is necessarily... Um, the, the beginning of something else, or at least the end of that. I mean, you don't bury live men, at least not commonly. Generally, burial, you know, is for the death of someone. So we need to verify that. So when skeptics come and they read the Word of God um, and they argue, I hear it all the time. I hear it today. I hear atheists come and say, Jesus wasn't even a, re a real figure. That is to deny historical evidence, whether you're a believer or not. Even one of the leading uh, atheists in our day, and one of the utmost, according to secular um, notion, leading uh, experts upon the New Testament and canon, and would say that, look at other atheists in the face and say, you're ridiculous. That Jesus is at least, he may not be God from a secular fashion, but at least he is the most well-attested to figure throughout human history. That you can argue possibly that the Bible is not inspired, but from a, a natural perspective, a secular humanist perspective, Jesus was at least a man who died upon a cross. There's no debate or discussion over that. You want to discuss other things from a secular fashion? We can. But the reality is, is that Jesus was alive. Jesus lived. Jesus had a prominent following. Jesus died upon a cross for blasphemy. And Jesus was buried and it was testified to by 500 men it says by the apostles but also here by a centurion and verified even by Pilate so why did he need to go and request the body of Christ because the because the common practice among Rome was to leave them there on the tree you know, you would think that maybe Pilate, they would take them down, the job is done, and they would leave them there, but they wouldn't. Humiliation from Rome against lawbreakers did not end at death. They would rob them of their graves, and they would continue to humiliate them for days afterwards. And they would leave them to hang there upon a tree to the point that um, birds and other animals would come by and they would ravage them and... That was the destiny of our Lord had it not been for Joseph. That he would have hung there upon a tree, chances are, for, for days in which he would have been consumed by the elements. His body would have been utterly corrupted. So, our, so this man Joseph courageously stands before Pilate. Why? Because he's putting himself at risk. He needed courage. He needed courage because of the Sanhedrin. Because when he goes and he stands publicly before the Sanhedrin, he's risking it all. 
He's risking his position. He's risking his reputation. He's risking his position on the Sanhedrin and in the council. Um, he's, he's putting himself out there publicly. And, um, and as a result of that, um, he's almost giving up his life. But not only that, he could literally give up his life. If Pilate's having a bad day, I mean, after all, this man Jesus and these other men are insurrectionists within the Jewish um, elite, the Jewish community, um, who are committed or who are condemned for high treason. And it could be easily seen that Joseph is coming, aiding and abetting, trying to commit some coup against Rome. So he needed courage. He needed courage to stand before Pilate. Why? Because his life was risked against Rome. But his life too, in some sense, was risked um, against the Jewish um, elite and the religious elite of those days. But amazingly, God gives them favor with Pilate. Um, it was Roman practice to leave them up there, but it was also common um, for the magistrate to give the body to the family members if he sought to be merciful that day. So this would not have been uncommon that a, a family would have went um, to a criminal, uh, went before the magistrate and requested the body, and oftentimes it would be given. And that's exactly what you find there in verse number 45. So when he had found out that this, from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the body of Joseph. So they received the body. Again, the other gospel writers tell us that Nicodemus at this moment um, comes along with him and buys 75 to 100 pounds of spices. They buy fine linen. And you see the ritual now. We've seen the, um, we've seen the request. We've seen the response of Pilate. And now we see the ritual carried out. They bury our Lord. Can you imagine the scene again? He's hanging there lifeless on a tree. The hustle and bustle has stopped. The ridicule's no longer. It's silence. They've only got an hour, maybe two. They've got to rush. Why? Because it's pro-sabaton. It's preparation day. It's the day before Sabbath. They've got to get it done. Why? Because they're law keepers as well. They're part of the Sanhedrin. They would honor the Lord's day. Yet at the same time, I don't want to create the picture that they were careless. They take our Lord down. His body's unrecognizable. The blood is coagulating across his body. They look at him and you can't even tell it's him. But they know that it is. They've seen him die. They've seen him be crucified. What do they do? And the Bible tells us in, in other Gospels that Nicodemus is just lavish in his love for Jesus such that, again, he's a wealthy man. The Gospels tell us that Joseph is a wealthy man. Nicodemus is a wealthy man. You wouldn't find a person on the Sanhedrin that wasn't. And we find these men utilize their means. Sacrifice of themselves to honor our Lord one last time. So they bought the finest of linens, took Him down, the text says, wrapped Him in the fine linen, the other gospel writers again tell us that they had many spices. And this wouldn't have been uncommon, especially for kings or um, elite men in which they lavishly um, poured out and burned spices and incense to honor the dead. And that's exactly what they did here for our Lord. That they went to, with all that they had. And the Bible says there in verse 46, "...and He laid Him in a tomb." which had been hewn out of the rock. 
and rolled the stone against the door of the tomb. I believe it's Luke's gospel that tells us that this tomb was actually the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. That this was a new tomb, the gospels tell us. It was a tomb in which no other tomb, no other person had ever been buried. And it was a tomb that was nearby. So Joseph and Nicodemus and possibly some of the women and maybe even their servants um, carry out this lavish burial in which they provide our Lord with the best that they have, even in their sacrifice. Verse number 47, And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. That's an interesting text. It just seems kind of like an insert. Maybe it is. I think it's there to set the stage for the women being witnesses also of his death, his burial, and then of his resurrection. And it's indisputable that Jesus died, was buried, and he rose again. And that's the text. We have before us the request of the body. We have before us the response of Pilate he graciously, again in a secular, humanistic sense, or just in an apathetic and indifferent sense. He gives them the body. And then these men and women go and take the body and do with it as they desire. What do we learn from the text? This text first teaches us again that Jesus was buried. It's that simple. And when it teaches us that He was buried, it teaches us that He died. It teaches us that it is beyond, I think, speculation that our Lord was put there in the tomb. That it was verified by witnesses that He died and it will be verified too by witnesses that he, he lives again. It seems like something that doesn't even need to be said, but I'm telling you that when you go out into the world and you engage people um, that, that, are, that are of this world um, who have a bent against the Lord Jesus Christ and, and against Christianity for a whole host of reasons, you're going to encounter the reliability of the New Testament. You're going to encounter topics such as the reliability or the authenticity of the Scriptures. You're going to engage people on the historicity or the accuracy of them concerning even Jesus. You have people that tell you um, time and time again that Jesus was not a true and a real person. Um, and you need to be ready to stand courageous you know, and stand for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who lived and died and bled and rose again on your behalf. That that's the reality. Um, so it teaches us simply that Jesus died. And the witness of that was, of course, His burial. And there was much witness even, um, even beyond that. Secondly, what else does it teach us? It teaches us the sovereignty of God. It teaches us the sovereignty of God. If you have your Scriptures, uh, turn to Isaiah chapter number 53. You may or may not have known, but this is a Scripture, that this passage of Scripture is actually a fulfillment of prophecy. Or at least insofar as we can tell, we have more than good reason to believe that this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You see, during this day, Joseph was just carrying on with his life. Joseph desiring to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Um, Joseph, a good and a just man. Joseph, a learner looking towards the kingdom of God. Um, Joseph, a secret disciple of our Lord who courageously stands before Pilate and fights for the, um, for the body of Jesus. 
was actually fulfilling Old Testament Scripture. In that great portion of Scripture, Isaiah 53 and verse number 9, you read these words. And they made his grave with the wicked. Let's start in verse number 8 to give the context. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare this generation, his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. From the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse number 9, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. What you find is that as they take our Lord, they take Him to a burial site that more than likely was filled with the wicked. We can look at this in a natural way and say that He was buried among the wicked. Or you can look at it in a very spiritual way as well, which is right in doing so. That Jesus Christ, according to the writer of Hebrews, became like us in all points and died the death of the wicked. Not becoming wicked Himself, never sinning um, a day in His life or even a moment. There wasn't one action, word, thought, deed in his life. Never had a bad attitude, um, but fully sinless Son of God takes upon himself the very wrath of God um, and by doing that um, affords sinners life in him if they'll only come to him by faith and repentance. But it is also very likely, given that second portion of the text, that not only would he be buried with the wicked, but also with the rich. And it's interesting because the term wicked there is plural in the original. And the term there for rich is singular. It could literally be translated that he would be buried with a rich man. That there would be one in whom that he would be buried with or, or for or, or in. And it is without a doubt in my mind, an allusion here to John chapter 19 to Mark chapter 15 in which this man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, a, the, the text says a wealthy man in the other Gospels would, would give up and sacrifice his burial spot, his new tomb um, for this man that would take upon himself the trans, Isaiah, the transgressions of all his people. The transgressions of all his people. That what you see here is the sovereignty of God carrying out and carrying about His will providentially in time and reality and fulfilling even the Scriptures. What we see in this text is the sovereignty of God and the fulfillment of prophecy and the Scriptures. And it's just a blessed testimony to the, to the, the control and power of God all over His creation and as He facilitates the burial of our Lord. And in doing so, protection of the body and incorruptibility. You know, I think it's Psalm chapter number 16 um, that, 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 that David there writes um, that, that, that his body would not be corrupted in Sheol. Acts chapter 2 and verse number 31, the apostle Peter is preaching there at Pentecost and he applies that to the Lord himself, Jesus Christ. And he says that his, he would not be corrupted. And in some sense, um, that's the, in, the idea of the passage. 
That's one reason that he would go into a new tomb, that he would not um, be buried in the same place as death. It would not be a place that was cultivated with, with death. He would be buried in a place of purity, in a place that had not been ruined yet by the stench of death or the corruption of death. He would not hang there upon a tree. He would not be corrupted over days and days. He would not be left out as a spectacle for the world. The people of God who have a, a, a reverence and a morality about them would see the injustice in that and they would argue for the body of Jesus. Even if it cost him his life, he would pluck up the courage that is within him. Why? So that he could, he could honor our Lord and serve our Lord at least one last time. And don't forget that at this moment, they're all sorrowful. Many have abandoned. They don't believe that He's going to rise again. There's no indication that, that He's doing this with the utmost joy. They don't understand fully yet until our Lord is glorified of what's about to happen in the resurrection. Although what you see in the midst of uncertainty is, is, is the remainder of the fullness of the faithfulness of God's people, even in spite of something that they don't fully understand. It doesn't say that he stopped being a disciple. It doesn't say that he stopped looking for the kingdom of God. It doesn't say that he tarnished his character and, and they're obligatorily because they know that this is their duty. They're going to go get the Lord and they're going to bring him down and bury him so that they won't be defiled. Now it seems that every intention here is to honor their Lord with what they have as one last moment that they can love Him with, even at the cost of their life, even at the cost of their finances, even at the cost of their prominence and position within the Sanhedrin. They, 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 uh, Joseph uh, risks to lose it all. He risks to lose it all. And yet he stays steadfast. He stays steadfast. Not only do we see the sovereignty of God um, in the fulfillment of Scriptures. But we see the sovereignty of God carried out generally, ordinarily, by the seeming normal acts of men. We might call this God's providence. That through God's providence, orchestrating human history, He doesn't necessarily override the will to accomplish. He doesn't come outside of the natural realm and do a miracle Ordinarily, He can do that. He can heal the blind and reverse the blindness. He can um, heal the deaf and reverse the deafness. He can, he can heal the lame and they can walk again and give strength outside of modern medicine. But what you see, and I think probably the greater miracle in some sense, is that God from hundreds or thousands of years past can prophesy something in the future without overriding the wills of men, yet carry out um, the very will of God that He's prophesied by utilizing their own intentions, their natural inclinations, their own personalities, and what they desire to do in their own hearts. That's what you see in this text. John chapter 19 and verse number 38 says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly... For the fear of the Jews asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and, a hundred, and about a hundred pounds. And then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury There's no indication in the text that when 
Joseph or Nicodemus hear our Lord's final cry, see His blood begin to coagulate on His body, see the lifeless body on there, that they immediately think, Isaiah 53, Nicodemus, ladies, I've got to go to Pilate. We have two hours to get this done. We've got to protect the veracity of the Old Testament Scriptures. We've got to vindicate the honor of God. We've got to get this done. Boys, we've got to... If you can't find a rich man's tomb, I'll just do it myself. You know, there's not this orchestration of we've got to fulfill prophecy to vindicate God's Word or to vindicate God's character. No, God is just using normal men, disciples of Jesus, to carry out His work in this world world as He lives and breathes in their lives according to the power of the Spirit, according to the Word of God. That what you see here is a real moment. What you see here is the real man who just watched the Lord of glory, whom he believed would, 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 would bring in the kingdom of God, give up his last breath in the midst of a misunderstanding and no doubt sorrow all throughout this and tears that filled the hours. You know, the Spirit of God, His goodness, His, His just, His rightness, His righteousness compels Him to live for Christ in the moment. That, that, that it's the Spirit of God in Him and working through Him. It's the Word of God that has dwelled in Him and been brought to light by the Holy Spirit. It is the fact that He's a disciple. He's been converted by our Lord. You know, he's, he, he's not following in, 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 in exhaustive knowledge of everything that is and is supposed to happen. He doesn't have a perfect knowledge of the Old Testament. He's simply a man striving to be faithful. And in doing so, carries out the very will of God in such a way that, that will affect human history for all to come. Do you think that in that moment, that he's necessarily thinking that we've got to vindicate God and I'm going to set the stage for the resurrection. No, but that's exactly what he does. You know? That's exactly what he does. And he does it in the midst of a chance. So he's a converted man. Um, he, he's a disciple. He's a learner. He's a follower of a Christ. That's exactly, or that's literally what disciple means, just a learner. He's just a follower of Jesus. He's a man who wakes up like you and I do every day, except he probably put on a robe instead of, you know, a t-shirt. And he's waking up on that day, possibly with anxiety. Or maybe he didn't even wake up that day, to be honest with you. He pulled an all-nighter at work with the Sanhedrin. And you know what Luke tells us? Luke tells us that he actually did not consent to the deed that was at hand. That this isn't the first time that he stood up for Christ. It seems that when the Sanhedrin are, are arguing against our Lord, that he stands up because he's a good and a just man and a disciple of our Lord looking for the kingdom of God, and he withstands the Sanhedrin. He says, no. He says, you want my consent? It won't happen. You want my vote? It's not, not today. You know why? Because this is illegal, this is unjust, and this is possibly even the king of glory who's bringing in the kingdom. You know, the Bible there in John chapter number 19 says that, um, says that he was a secret disciple. A secret disciple. Right? We just read that. John chapter number 19 says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. If you've ever heard a sermon on this, I'm going to say they might be right. 
Um, probably what you've heard is, is you've heard that Joseph was a secret disciple who at this moment had to come out with courage to stand for our Lord, that he was somewhat lost in the Sanhedrin. And just like us, some days at work, you know, we're afraid to, we're a disciple, but we're afraid to live for Jesus. So we kind of secretly are the secret disciple and we just need to come out of our shell and stand for Jesus. That might be true. Um, and that's a good sermon to preach. Let me just say, I think that that is a reality that needs to be addressed in our society. It's a, it's a reality that needs to be addressed within our church, within our own lives, because the reality is, is that, that on many days we walk throughout the world and nobody has a clue that we're Christians. You know? You know, on the day that we're buried and our bodies are prepared and, 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 and our family with just sorrow, yet I pray with joy because they know that we're Christians. Will, 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 will people come in right to our funeral? And when the gospel is preached and they find out he, you know, this is the church that he was a part of, they, have, they would have had no idea. <laughs> like he went to church. I worked with him for 15 years. I wouldn't have guessed. With the things that he said, with the things that he did, with the stands that he took, and with the things that he didn't, you know? That the reality is, is that what we need within, uh, within the, the family of God and within the community of God are people whose Christianity is not, only, is not only projected and proclaimed here with utmost visibility, but we, with unreserved love for Jesus Christ, carry that out, not only in character, but in word and action in every area of life, you know? Like Jesus is Lord of our lives. Right? That means that, that He is the King. That means that when He gives a decree, we jump. You know? That means that when He says go, we go. That means when He says live like this, we live like that. And, and, and unlike the, 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 the King who is a tyrant, we do it with the utmost joy as slaves of Jesus Christ who have formally and officially and lovingly and joyfully um, have come under the dominion of the greatest king in all the earth. You know? It doesn't matter what he asked me to do. I'll do it even in the sight of men regardless of what it means for my position, my preferences. Um, I'll use my leverage wherever I'm at that Jesus Christ may be known throughout all the world. But there is not a concept within the Scriptures of a secret disciple. Like you're living for Jesus or you're not. And you're to live for Him in every area of life or you're not really living for Him at all. And we need some men. We do. We need some women. We need, we need some families who will be unreservedly and unashamedly Christian in every area of life, that regardless of what they say about us at the end of life, and at the least they know that I'm a Christian. They may not like the fact that I'm a Christian, but they know that I am. Many people take that route with this text, and that's a plausible route. I don't necessarily think that that's the route that the text actually argues for, though. Um, he says there in John chapter number 19 and verse number 38, um, that, that being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, that word secretly there in the original is not actually, it's not an adjective. You homeschool kids know what an adjective is. It's something that describes something else. He's not describing what type of disciple he is there. It's a verb. It's an action. 
it, it literally it, it translated everywhere else hidden or concealed. That he was the disciple of Jesus who was hidden for fear of the Jews. That it's very plausible that he is hiding now until the very, that he's either being, so, so it's passive. He is being hidden. It's not something that he is doing actively. He's being hidden either by other disciples or maybe hidden by God himself. Why? Possibly for the task that he will have at hand to fulfill all of Scripture. Jesus did this often, right? The work, what did he say? He often fled. Why? Because he was a coward? No. He wasn't a coward at all. But the work that was given for him to do was not yet. So he continued to minister throughout the regions, the gospel message, doing miracles and all have you. But when the time was right, he came out into the open and he did the work that the Father sent him to do. And it may very well be that in some providential fashion here, that's exactly what happened. That Joseph stands up at the, San, at, the, at the council of the Sanhedrin and he is spotted and tagged as an insurrectionist as well. Why? Because he would not consent to the death of Christ. He wouldn't do it. So what? So he, he is hidden. He's hidden by the disciples Why? Or, or because of the fear of the Jews. Right? Because they would take him. They would seize him. They would kill him. They would, he would carry out in the same... Uh, he, would be, he, would, he would share in the same fate as his Lord. So what does the Lord do? He, he possibly hides him. That this was a, the text is clear. The man wasn't a coward, I don't think. He was a good man. He was a just man. You know, Leviticus chapter number 4 actually gives a, an Old Testament picture of this passage of Scripture. You know, the Old Testament sacrifices um, or illustrations or pictures of the New Testament, Jesus. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 4, what you'll find is that the sacrifice is taken out by the priest to a clean place. That just like this, our Lord is to be taken out and placed in a clean tomb in a place of burial that was not corrupted. Why? Because his body was not to see corruption. There's a man, a commentator by the name of Andrew Bonar, um, who years before commenting on that in Leviticus chapter 4 makes reference to John chapter number 19 and these other passages of Scripture. And I don't, my computer died. I don't have uh, the, the, the quote ever before me. But he makes the argument that in the New Testament, outside of John the Baptist, clear indication by Jesus that, that he was the greatest man. He says, he says that Joseph, he's convinced that Joseph of Arimathea is the most upright man in the New Testament outside of John the Baptist. Why? Because he was a converted man. He was a disciple of our Lord. He was a good, a just, and a righteous man. And, and when time came to, to, to shove, when push came to shove, um, he stood courageously for our Lord. He wasn't a coward. You know? You say, well, he had to take courage. Yes, because, because regardless, it took courage to stand before Pilate. It wasn't to come out of the shadows as, as a true disciple and everybody is on that day, oh, I can't believe he's a Christian. No, I think that they knew that he was a Christian. I think they understood, at least in the Sanhedrin, what he stood for. So he goes into hiding for fear of the Jews and what they might do to him. And God uses him and preserves him through that so that in this moment that he could, he could facilitate one of the greatest... Uh, ministries to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ all throughout the New Testament. I mean, because of this, the stage would be set for three days later in which the tomb could be, the, the stone could be rolled away 
Scripture fulfilled. And a light dawns upon the entirety of the world. And you know what? I don't think he even understood that in its fullness. I don't think that there was a means to an end. I think that he was just being faithful. I think he was a simple disciple of Jesus Christ. He was a learner. He was looking for the rule and reign, not only then, but not only in one day, but also that day. And he loved the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when he died upon the cross, he came out and he said, we've got to have the body. We've got to honor our Lord. I'll give him my tomb. Whatever money it takes, whatever time, however quickly we need to get there, we'll do it. We'll honor him. One last time, you know? And it set the stage and environment for the greatest miracle of all the world. And the Lord blessed not only him, but Nicodemus and these men who were simply faithful. And I would just give a call to all of you men today. All of you ladies, all of you boys and girls who have made a, 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 a proclamation, a profession of faith in Jesus Christ to simply be faithful. You know? Yeah, God does miracles. Yes, God does step outside of reality. Yes, God does use unnatural means. Yes, God um, sometimes suspends the laws of physics and He reverses um, the body. I'm, I'm a charismatic in some sense. <laughs> You know, not in the ultimate sense of, of today, but I do believe that God still accomplishes miracles, particularly through the, the ordinary means of the prayers of God's people as He burdens them, as they live and delight in Him. Yet at the same time, I think God does amazing things through you simply being faithful. God saves your children through you being faithful at home to disciple your children. You know, God restores marriages. Through the simple means of being faithful. God saves men in life and reality. You know, we don't do it for those reasons necessarily. You know, we're just trusting God with the means that He's given us that, 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 that if we're faithful in it, He will ultimately bless, you know? And I'm convinced that God will do things that we'll sit back and, and, and scratch our heads at and say, to glory be God you know, I wasn't trying to accomplish that, but just simply being faithful. You know, it's like sitting down with my kids, or you know, or or or, or you sitting down with your kids at night and just trying to win them with the gospel every night. You know, it's like I'll get them. I've got the most amazing message. You know, and when they don't receive it, what does it do? It just it floors you, doesn't it? You're just like I don't understand why they don't believe that. I do that sometimes preaching. You know? But the reality is, is that most of your children will be converted, of course, by the gospel and the gospel alone. But, but God will use as a means of that, not that one time that, man, you just sat down and hit it out the park. But the reality that they look back and they say, man, daddy was faithful to disciple me every day. It wasn't anything grand, it wasn't anything glorious according to the world's standards. But you could tell that he loved Jesus. Why? Because he was faithful and diligent in what he believed. And God used those ordinary means of driving home the Scriptures every day, even in a fallible way, even when you didn't feel worthy to do it. You still you stayed the line and you stayed the course, man, and God did it to do a miracle in your son or your daughter's lives and continues to encourage them even this day. And it's an example of how um, they ought to raise up their homes or how they are to evangelize others, you know? It's the same in the church. I've realized like, people don't stay because I'm a wonderful expositor, you know? Um, I'm a great personality. I'm not. 
You know? God's not blessing this church because of the great things that we have to offer Him. You know? He just wants men to be faithful. To stand up behind the pulpit, exposit the Word. And He uses those ordinary means, those things, right? Right? The, the foolishness of, of, of the world, of, you know, of preaching. <laughs> you know? And I don't necessarily have to feel like I have to hit it out. You don't have to feel like you have to hit it out of the park every single week. Just be faithful. Be a man to follow. You'll understand that, that people will come along the way and they'll say, I don't really remember anything special about anything you said. No sermon really sticks out, but I appreciate your faithfulness. You know, I appreciate your faithfulness because when you should have quit according to the world standards, you didn't. You know, like when things seemed to be going south and you could have run, you stayed the course. And I know that if you were doing it for yourself, you would have, you, you, you would have ran, but you didn't. You know? And it's the same for you, men. When your marriages are on the rocks, when your family's going awry, when things are going uh, uh, you know, south at work, you just stay in the course. You're convinced that that's where God wants you. You know, and, and, and you're not necessarily doing it for any great, grand, and glorious experience. You're just, God, Christ is worthy. You know? Like if you see Him there hanging upon the tree and all that He's done for you, I don't know what this will amount to according to Joseph's recollection, I imagine. But I know it's right. I know it's good. I know it's just. And I'm compelled in this moment, regardless of what happens to my reputation with the Sanhedrin and what happens with my life according to Pilate, I will pluck up the courage to serve and honor Christ this one last time. I mean, that's what we need in our homes. That's what we need in our communities. That's what we need in our nation. Just men who wake up day in and day out and just determined to be faithful to our Lord. And I trust that He'll use those ordinary means and those faithful acts to reach the nations. To reach the nations. May we be more like Joseph. Good and just. May we be more like Joseph, learning ever more of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and what He did, the realities of the cross and the burial, the resurrection. May we look to Him often. You know? When we need to hide, may we understand that it may be God preparing us for something else that we need to be faithful in. May we not see that as the condemnation of our Lord, wondering, Lord, why have you put me on the shelf for all this time? Learn where you're at. Men and women, children, one of the greatest things that you'll ever, that you'll ever, that you'll ever be equipped with is an understanding of patience in life. And realizing that that in those moments, God is using them for His glory and for your good. And when He sees fit, He'll unloose you for the work that He's called you to do. Until then, hide faithfully. Work faithfully. Labor faithfully. Don't long for the glory. Because if that's the case, you'll never receive it. But simply strive to be faithful in those moments. And God will set the stage, possibly even for something greater. Joseph was used to serve Christ one last time. But at the same time, he had the glorious blessing of putting him in the environment which three days later would give hope to all the world. You know? And I'm saying that that's, yes, a one-time thing here, but that's how God ordinarily works. Not in miraculous and glorious experiences to convince you to follow Him. But as you follow Him, He does miraculous things through you as you cling to Him by faith. So are you. 
You know? Are you? And if you're not, I want to encourage, I want to, I want to give you Joseph today. That you might look to him as an example. You say, I don't look to men. Um, I just look to Jesus. And then you're not looking to Christ because Christ has ordinarily given us men. Yeah, there's, a, there's on occasion those type of guys who can, you know, who are martyrs for Jesus and who can go out and they can just live alone without anybody else and be faithful. But that's not ordinary. That's not general. That's not the, the norm. You know, it's like, it's like somebody saying, you know, I grew up in a home that was just totally um, godless. And there was one little kid there that just somehow came out with all the morality, saved, and, and, and we praise God for that, but that's not ordinary, you know? That God has ordinarily given parents to children to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord because they need them. And ordinarily, that's the means by which He brings children to Christ through the faithfulness of parents and the instruction of the parents in the church. There's anomalies, yes, but ordinarily. And the same is true with the church. That ordinarily men need men. They need men to look to and to follow in that example. That's why Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So I would encourage you this morning to look to Joseph or to look to men in the church, you know, who may not have overwhelmingly glorious lives that you would want to put on a poster board that this is Christianity. But men who have been faithful and the Lord has blessed lives. Let us look to those men. Because those are the men really that God's at work in and truly blessing their lives. So I commend to you this morning, Joseph. I commend to you, Nicodemus. I commend to you a few faithful women who stayed there and honored our Lord even in His last moments when they could have ran. We need men today to pluck up the courage to live for Christ. So let us live, men, and let us pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You for the glory of Christ. We thank You for the privilege it is, Lord, just to, to call upon Your name. Father, we recognize that we are sinners in some sense, apart from God. Um, but even in Christ, Father, we still struggle with this old body. Father, we struggle day in and day out in how to live and how to operate and how to look to You, Father, how to abide in Christ. So would you, Father, overwhelm us with your love? Would you give us a sense of control in our minds that we could ever look to the gospel, Father, and, and preeminently to Jesus Christ? And may you also give us other men into whom we don't look to solely as individuals, Father, but we look to as examples of Christ. We look to them because we see Christ in them, the hope of glory. Father, I know Christ did many amazing things. But in some sense, for most of his life, he was just faithful. 30 years. And that was the basis, Father, of his ministry in his humanity and deity. Father, I don't know anything else about Joseph. But what a blessing it is to see you use him. Just an ordinary man, ordinary man seeking to be faithful with real problems. And he was a disciple, ever learning, ever looking ever seeking after the kingdom of God. Father, may you help us to be that. Father, may our lives just be um, just enamored, Father, with discipline and faithfulness to you. Father, would you help us to crucify the pride that is within us, 
to present to you a humble heart, Father, because if we do that, you'll have all of us. You'll have our finances, you'll have our tombs, um, you'll have our positions, Father, and in that we'll be able to trust you with whatever. You know, if God be for us, who can be against us? That's the reality. Father, make that reality alive in our hearts. Help us to cling to Christ. Help us to pursue Him with a joy, Father, that is before us. Help us to reach after the treasure, Father. And help us to be men um, who are simply faithful. And when the world looks in, they see Christ. Yet at the same time, Father, um, we're simply clinging to You that You may get all the glory. So, Father, cultivate those type of men in our church and help each one of us to be an example to follow. I mean, there's always someone, Father, that, that's looking to us. Help us to remember that. We're not, we're not independent. and We don't live and die unto ourselves. But we live and die unto the Lord. So let us live, Father. Let us not hide out in secret. Let us live, Father, even if it's only for two years. Give us two years living for Christ versus 90 years without. Give us two days, Lord, in which we just honor you in monumental ways that men like Nicodemus will follow. Um, not that we might get the glory, Father, but that your son might be exalted and his name known throughout all the earth. Make us that type of church. Make me that type of man. In Christ's name, amen.